Welcome to episode 155 of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from our virtual studio, not on the campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary, by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who is recovering from the flu, John Scott Sloat. I, I think it was the flu. I'm, I'm so, not totally sure. So can we call this your flu episode? Yeah, like yeah, I M- think so. I think this MJ's flu COVID game. Epi- I've had a COVID episode and now I've yeah. had a flu episode. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think it was food poisoning. Um, like other people that have had flu moments, uh, famous yeah. uh, flu moments that, that blame that. It's certainly not the brown bottle uh, problem. Uh, that's no. not the issue. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, yes, I believe I had the flu. I had a very mild case. I've been home for a few days now. It was when we were recording last and, uh, I just started getting the chills as we were recording and I went, Oh no, Oh no, (laughs) this is bad. And I went home and I crawled in the bed and I felt miserable the rest of the day. Uh, And that's what really hit me. I probably had another full day in bed. After that, and then and then I've been I've been slowly on the mend. Yesterday was a low energy day. Today I'm today I'm doing all right. Today I'm doing well. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Um, well, if you would like to get in touch with the show, ask John how he's feeling personally. You can reach out to the show on Twitter at vnspod. You can email the show variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and on YouTube. And we did have a listener. uh, We will refer to her as Stephanie in Indiana. Reach out to us, uh, offering a a very kind correction. We incorrectly identified Eddie in Christmas Vacation as a brother, I think. And she is helpfully pointing out that uh, it is Cousin Eddie. Yeah. So... uh, Appreciate the the uh, the help there, um, and she also uh, ha- had a very nice note about her fondness of Christmas movies, and um, noting that she grew up on the edited version of Christmas Vacation, which takes out some of the content that was mentioned on the previous episode. Yeah, uh, I I remember growing up. I mean, Bond movies. Uh, growing up on. Uh, uh, some of the some of the Die Hard would be another one. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these sort of action movies that I'm that I remember them in in Cable World, and yeah. uh, and they were pretty mild. Yeah, yeah. Those you know, some of those movies are harder to obviously clean up than others <laughs> when it comes to the language. And you know, you could always yeah, you you would sometimes get the the bad. Um, the bad version, right? Where it's like the, the, they either tried to dub over it mm-hmm. or, and, and this, then of course it didn't match this, the voice obviously. And so it was very clearly a poor effort there. Yeah. I remember uh, dirty Harry is another one. I remember watching as I was growing up, um, watch, yeah. watching all those with my dad on, on, you know, TBS or TNT or something. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Stephanie also recommended the um, uh, Christmas with the Cranks as well. 
uh, with Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis, which uh, Nate in Ohio also texted me about that one as well. Um, I, I Here's the thing. I've just not been a big Christmas movie person. So people seem to be shocked when I say, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Or I just like Christmas movies were never that big of a deal in my home growing up. Uh, and even in my young adulthood. So, uh, some of these I'm coming to for the very, like, I think I said this, uh, elf. I didn't see elf until last year. First time really? I've ever seen elf was last year. Yeah. Hmm. Now, what about, have you, what you, cause you're in the midst of a Christmas movie marathon sort of, uh, it's, it's ended now. Yes. Uh, so autumn has autumn and Jake have left, uh, to spend time with her family. So the, the marathon has come to an end. How was Claus? The animated Claus was it the fifth best Christmas movie ever? Um, no, it definitely was not. Um, <laughs> it was. I, I I found it enjoyable. Okay, but entirely overrated. Like way overrated. To put that as the fifth best Christmas movie of all time is ludicrous. Hmm. Absolutely ludicrous. Well, you should see Christmas with the Cranks. It'd be worth your time. Um, and. Uh... And you should see what was the other one we were just talking about? Oh, Elf. And eh. I'm a fan, but not a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, but Christmas with the Cranks be worth 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 some time. Yeah that 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 might uh, that might make it on the viewing list at some point here. We'll it see. It started it started as a novel, which I think helps. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, one thing we didn't point out in the intro here is that we are actually recording on a Thursday. So well in advance of the Tuesday episode drop, uh, because you are headed out of town on vacation. Yep. We fly out tomorrow morning, Chicago to Florida. So headed to Florida for, Oh, five, six days. We'll be down there. Gotcha. And so I assume you have plans to hang out with, uh, governor DeSantis while you're there. Of course, of course. Uh, as, as, as one does, uh, in, uh, in the moderately sized state of Florida. Yes. Um, but no, we'll be down there. We'll relax. We'll eat out. We'll watch movies, maybe Christmas movies. And yeah, just try to decompress a little bit. So um, let's jump ahead to Christmas. What what Christmas traditions are in the Slope family here in terms of whether it's Christmas Eve, Christmas Day? Uh, we can bracket out the Christmas movie stuff. We've kind of done that. So. Yeah. Um, my goodness, what sort of Christmas traditions? Um, you know, I, I would say we're pretty standard in the Christmas tradition category. Uh, certainly presents, certainly, uh, it's always breakfast first, then presents. Uh, and we do it in a, in a sort of hand them out one at a time, hand out each present one at a time and watch everybody open it. Not sort of this, like, you know, Lord of the flies free for all (laughs) around the presents. Um, So that was something uh, that was always that was always really big and really special in our family. And then uh, the other thing I'd say is Christmas Eve was always sort of this finger food. Like there's a cheese ball, there's shrimp, there's uh, assorted crackers and meats and and different things like that. So, yeah, uh, sushi, always sushi on Christmas Eve, too. So sort of interesting. Always this finger food uh, sort of um, Christmas Eve meal. Um, you normally a game of Phase Ten. Have you ever played Phase Ten? I have. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we were big fan. We're, we're a big Phase Ten family, so we'd play Phase Ten, um, uh, usually Christmas Eve night, sometimes Christmas Day. Uh, but th- those two things stick out. We we avoid the Lord of the Flies sort of moments and uh, okay. and uh, finger foods on Christmas Eve. What about what about the Harmon Home? Yeah, so growing up, um, we actually opened gifts on Christmas Eve. Oh. And after we went to church, so we'd have an early, an early dinner. We'd go to church for the Christmas Eve service. Um, and you know, mysteriously, my mom would be tardy to get into the car (laughs) as we're sitting there waiting. Where's mom? Why isn't she out here? Well, she's still getting ready. Okay. Then thinking, why do we have to be in the car? And then you get to a certain age where you realize why you wait in the car. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, that. And then Christmas Day, we would typically go uh, to both my both sides of my family since they lived in town. Um, typically, one for lunch, one for dinner. Um, now, as adults, um, Christmas. Uh, we're, Christmas Day and Christmas Eve were always with Kate's family. That's just how it's worked out. So <clears throat> we do uh, Christmas Eve service, and then uh, Christmas morning, uh, the kids get up and they open their stockings, and then we have a light breakfast, and then after that we start the uh, opening of gifts. Well, sorry, actually, in between there, there's the reading of the Christmas story, Luke 2. Oh, nice. And then opening of the gifts. And we go one at a time as well. And when you've got as many people, like we've got like 12, 12 or 13, I think it's 12 people. Um, The opening process takes anywhere between three to four hours. Hmm. Uh, which is fine because, you know, you need that amount of time to wait for the big meal of the day to be, to be cooked and prepared and all that. So. Sure. Sure. But I'm Uh, sure there's somebody there who's like trying to keep, keep the sludge moving, you know? Uh, all right, next who's up. All right. You. Yeah. And so the process is after you open a gift, um, you go to the, to the tree and pick one out for somebody else and then they open it. Uh, Okay. But yes, we do try to keep things moving. Um, between three and four hours, which it's fine. It's a sort of lazy, slow. I, I much prefer that to the all at once, <laughs> um, as you described it, Lord of the Flies process. So, yeah, I, but, I've yeah. never been at a Christmas like that where it's Lord of the Flies, but I've, I've heard stories where it's like papers everywhere, they're screaming. Um, yeah, my, my extended family on my dad's side when we would open gifts, um, when I was a kid was a little bit more like that all at once. It was sort of the, there was, they they would literally do a countdown. All the gifts would be passed out and there'd be a countdown and be like, all right, three, two, one go. And then it was just chaos. You know, the, the tearing of the paper, the ripping of the boxes, the, the shrieks of delight, you know, those sorts of things. So it was more an efficiency thing. I think, yeah. Ultimately. Yeah, it is. It is efficient, but it, it. And we were typically doing this at night, so, you know, like Christmas after Christmas di- after Christmas dinner, so doing three to four hours of that was probably not advisable at that point. So. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
but I, I can't remember. I, we, we do go to Christmas Eve service uh, with Kate's family when we're together. So that's always enjoyable. Uh, and then this Christmas, I'm assuming we're going to go to our Christmas morning service as well. Um, I think that'll be on the docket also, which will be interesting to figure out how then that works with the rest of our normal Christmas morning. But yeah, yeah. That's uh, in Omaha. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Yes. All right. Well, John, let's talk a little sports since we're recording so recently after we um, actually uh, recorded the previous episode. Um, there's not a lot to talk about here. Uh, in the interval, the World Cup semifinals did take place. Uh, France and Argentina uh, advanced. And so by the time you're listening to this, one of them will have already won the World Cup. We just don't know who. <laughs> we just don't know who. Uh, yes. Um, would you care to venture a prediction so we can be proved wrong? Uh, I, I am rooting for Argentina. Okay. Um, I know some some Argentinians. I like them. Um, <laughs> That's good. Um, I I, th- I think I've inherited from my father some dislike of the nation of France. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I think I'm rooting for Argentina. Uh, yes, I will be rooting for Argentina as well. I should say I have a preference for uh, Argentina, um, though France has looked very good, and uh, I won't be surprised if they win. So, um, you wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, news the out NBA of the NBA. Award? Yes. Uh, so the NBA, the NBA awards is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the NBA this week uh, came out with new awards, and they're named after players. Okay. Uh, historic players. So uh, you haven't seen this, right? Other than other than the one I told you. Okay. We'll get the easy one out of the way, and I want you to guess who who has this award named after. Okay. Just, just roll with it, Matt. Just roll with it. Okay, um, sure. Okay, uh, the MVP trophy. This is the one I gave you. Yeah, is named after Michael Jordan. Okay. Do you, Do you like the choice? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, Defensive Player of the Year. Who did they name that after? Uh let's see. Um, I'm going to go with Bill Russell. A little bit more modern. Really? Okay. Nineties. Uh, Nineties. Nineties. Uh, is it a big fella? A center? Yeah, it's a center. In the nineties. Boy, I'm running through my nineties centers. You got guys like Patrick Ewing, da- David Robinson, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. Though he was not a big defensive guy, he was more offensive. Um. Man, I, I'm struggling. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. What? Yes, See, they I named the defensive him. player of the year after Hakeem Olajuwon. I would, I peg him more as an, I mean, not that he was bad defensively, but that's surprising to me. Maybe my memories of the 90s are just fuzzy enough that I'm not remembering his defensive prowess. Um, uh, okay, next one. Uh, yep. Rookie of the year. Uh, 70s. 70s. Oh, gosh. Uh, let, let's just say I was not uh, 
avidly following the NBA in the seventies. Um, is this gettable? Surely it's gettable. Oh yeah. Give me a, uh, give me a position center, another center in the seventies rookie of the year. Um, gosh, Kareem. Nope. I don't know. Wilt. 70s. Okay, he's more 60s. Is he more 60s? Yeah. I just knew he lost the NBA championship to the Knicks, I think, in 70. I, I think, yeah. I I might have had a shot at that one if you just said 60s. Anyway. Yeah, Wilt. Okay. Uh, sixth man of the year. Mm. Sixth man. Sixth Vinny, man of the year. How about Vinny Johnson from the Pistons? Uh, that's him? a great guess. Uh, that's not it. <laughs> Who is it? John Havlicek. Okay, that's well before my time, and I could not have told you he was a come-off-the-bench kind of guy. Yeah. Um, most improved player. Hmm. Boy, most improved. Uh, Jeremy Lin, how's that? No. Oh, that's- <laughs> I, know. I, I know it's not him. Uh, George Mikan. Okay. Yes, we're going way back there. He was like a center before there were really centers in the NBA. And then this is the last one. Clutch player of the year. That seems like an odd award. Um, Kobe? No, that would have been nice, though. Who'd they go with? Uh, Probably uh, the greatest nickname ever, the Logo. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's Jerry Lucas, isn't it? Jerry West. Jerry yeah. West. Yeah, Jerry West. That's a, yeah. 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 It's interesting. OK. Those are some interesting choices. I thought um, you would enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. A, a, a good mix up, uh, a good thing to a good way to mix things up when there's not much opportunity to talk about sports here. So. All right, John, you ready to move on? Sure. All right, we are talking today, The Christmas Story. The past two years, we have done both Matthew and uh, we have done Luke. This year, we're going a little bit different direction because we are doing from the Gospel of John. And uh, we should probably just clarify, obviously, it's a little different take because you don't have the same kind of Christmas story in the sense of a description of Jesus' birth and the circumstances surrounding it. But I think of this as a Christmas text as well, because it does deal with uh, the incarnation. And so I thought it'd be good for us to, to talk about <clears throat> John one. And in particular, um, we could do the whole prologue, but I think um, maybe the best thing to focus on might be 14 through 18. What do you think, John? Yeah, I was thinking starting at 14 and going to 18. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you have the text in front of you? I do. You want me to read? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, So John chapter 1, verse 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, 
he come, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses grace and truth came through jesus christ no one has ever seen god the only god who is at the father's side he has made him known okay yeah, so obviously uh, in this text, there's a heavy emphasis on uh, Jesus' incarnation, which if you trace back to what incarnation means, it's infleshing, right? It's, uh, it's the idea of the word taking on flesh. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know, I this is just one of those concepts that, when, if, when I try to think about it, it just breaks my mind <laughs> to try to wrap my brain around uh, God becoming flesh. Um, and I think here is where it's helpful to think about um, the idea. I forget which of the church fathers said this. It might have been Augustine. But the idea of in the incarnation that that God adds on to that basically nothing is taken away in the incarnation, but something is added on to in terms of mm-hmm. the son taking on flesh and becoming a full embodied human being. Yeah. I mean, that that's absolutely mind blowing to think uh, that, that a member of the Godhead uh, chooses to, uh, uh, to do that, to, to, to uh, put on uh, flesh and become human. Yeah. Um, And here's where even thinking about sort of a cross-reference from Philippians 2 helps us think about this a little bit, um, where it talks about uh, Christ, although he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's all sorts of theological discussion about what that means. But then when you look in the context, it's he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, in other words, becoming human as well. So nothing was lost in his deity, but um, something was gained in the sense of the son taking on <clears throat> human flesh and becoming in one person, fully God and fully human. Which we get, uh, you know, as you sort of move down the the halls of church history, you eventually get the phrase, the hypostatic union, right? which tries to hold together this idea of, it's not that Jesus was part God and part man, but fully God and fully man, uh, which, again, you would expect this to stretch the limits of our human mind, something so profound like this. So the fact that we can't understand fully how that works uh, shouldn't be a stumbling block, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes. And, and some, you know, I, I think giving church fathers some, uh, some grace in this conversation, right. You and I, you and I sit upon a mountain of church thought that has gone into this. Uh, I'm sure the first time somebody went, hold on, how can somebody be 100% God and 100% man? How, how would that work? Yeah. Like explain to me what's happening there. Uh, 
You right. know, I'm sure that was a very difficult thing. And that that's one way that we can look back on, you know, the creeds, uh, uh, our church mm-hmm. history, and be able to to, to be thankful and and uh, benefit from that. Yeah, and I think you know some people who are are tend to be on the very biblicist end of things uh, can get unnecessarily nervous about systematic theology. Uh, as if it's sort of this imposition on the text. And I think with respect to the person of Christ as well as the Trinity, uh, these are areas where it should seem evident that systematic theology at its best is is trying to summarize lots of different texts and what the Bible says about the nature of God. And so, yeah, it might use terms like hypostatic union or trinity, which are not explicitly in the text. But you have to do something with the way the Bible talks about Jesus. It talks about him as fully human, except without sin. Mm-hmm. And it talks about him as God. So you have to do something with that. You have to find some way to try to articulate that. And at its best, these terms, these phrases are shorthand expressions to try to capture a large amount of biblical data and synthesize it into what scripture teaches. Well, and just because words like Trinity, hypostatic union, things like that aren't found in scripture Mm -hmm. does not mean that it's a shaky or unimportant doctrine. Right. Um, I, 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 I've been reading about the Trinity a a little bit more recently and, uh, you know, one of the authors I'm reading make, makes the point that, you know, the Trinity feels at times like a secondary or um, the shakiest doctrine that we have because it's not found in Scripture. Um, and, and I think that can be due to an uh, uh, overemphasis on biblicism. Is that a mm-hmm. fair statement? Yeah, I think... Yes. Again, we have to make sure we carefully understand what we're talking about. We say being a biblicist or biblicism. Um, in this context, I think what we're trying to emphasize is this kind of biblicism is to such a degree where if it's not explicitly stated in the text, then it's mm-hmm. not something that we need to be concerned about. Yeah. Or that it's not important. Uh, or that it might that that it that it's automatically suspicious or and probably false, mm-hmm. uh, which just doesn't doesn't hold up to scrutiny when you start to really think about, um, you know, the nature of scripture itself as well as uh, our understanding of um, of the gospel of orthodoxy etc. Um. Well, that, that's just that first phrase. The next phrase that always strikes me in John 1, 14, there is the, uh, that he dwelt among us. And that's, uh, in my estimation, a an unfortunate translation by many English translations, not just the ESV here. But Is there um, any translation that gets it the way you want it, though? Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. I've, I haven't done the digging. There might be. But... Um, the idea is that he tabernacled among us. I wonder if, you know, the the New American Standard might might go that way. I'm going to look that real quick. Um, so I, so tabernacled among us. We're talking, you know, there's a lot of Old Testament reference there, back to uh, uh, when 
Israel's coming out of Egypt. Uh, they set up a tabernacle as sort of the dwelling place of God. And God would come out of the tabernacle uh, in a cloud and, and lead them and then would, would, would settle back into the tabernacle wherever they uh, where he told them to set it up. And it eventually became the temple in Jerusalem. It eventually developed into that. And so uh, essentially saying the word being Jesus uh, became human and was the tabernacle of God among us. Is that, is that the sense of John 114 here? And that, is that why it's so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. such a big deal? Yeah. I mean, I think it, what it's getting at by using, I mean, there are plenty of, there are other words he could have that John could have used. Uh, and by specifically using the word to set up a tent to tabernacle, uh, I think he's intentionally pulling on Old Testament imagery to uh, help us to see that uh, that that there's a sense in which Jesus is the place where God dwells on earth with his people. Uh, so in the incarnation, um, th- that's what's going on. And of course, uh, by using that term, it pulls on all of that Old Testament imagery of tabernacle eventually developing into temple. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't see an English translation that that uses tabernacled. Um, I see what's interesting is the original, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the original, had um, took up residence among us. Uh, but then when they did the revision in, in 2017, they went back to dwelt. Mm. So I, they got to do it because of the Christmas songs, right? There are just so many Christmas songs that use the word dwell. Um, I was noticing that on Sunday when we were, when we were singing in church that they were using the mm-hmm. word, I think, I think two or three of the songs on Sunday use the word dwell. Um, yeah. it, it always brings this passage to mind. Yeah. So I think, um, and I get it. And this might be a case where you just can't do translation has limits. And so this could just be a place where you, you stick with the translation of dwell and then you just have to explain the significance of it, um, which is fine. And it is a, it is a remarkable thing to think about um, that in one sense, it goes all the way back to the garden because in the yeah. original creation, you've got God dwelling with his people, Adam and Eve, in the garden. And sin disrupts that. So the fact that now God is taking on flesh, he's dwelling among uh, his people, is indicating that God is now acting to undo what uh, what Adam and Eve did in terms of their rebellion. He's, he's acting to at last reestablish him dwelling with his people in a much more profound way than through a physical tent, as special as the tabernacle was, or the temple, which was an impressive building. But keeping in mind, of course, uh, both of those structures were very limited in who could access them. And in the person of Jesus, you know, you have Jesus walking around, physically touching and and encountering people, uh, which I think is a clear indication of God's heart for the world that he wants to dwell with his created people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the tabernacle would have had varying degrees of separation, right? There, there would have been curtains uh, that would have kept certain people out of certain areas. 
Uh, and here we have a tabernacle that has skin uh, and it, yeah. it is walking around, touching, healing, d- doing these things uh, and is being God's presence among people. Um, yeah. Matt, I did look up Net Bible, uh, <laughs> okay. which, is always, which is always a good one if you need an interesting translation. Uh, yeah. the, and, and then they usually explain their work in their notes. They usually do a yep. pretty good job. Uh, they do took up residence and then they have a note that says tabernacled. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like like dwell more or do you like took up residence more? Those seem to be the two options. I I would actually go with dwell over took up residence, to be honest. Okay. Um, Hmm. To me, I think that makes more sense if you're going to get away from the tabernacle thing. Um, I don't know. Take up residence. Yeah, both are fine, I think. Um, and I think it's, it's what follows off after that makes sense. When you think of the, the, the tabernacle and temple imagery of, um, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Um, that the idea of the incarnation is to manifest God's glory. It is to display it. And the fact that he does it in, uh, in human flesh is just, striking one of the lines in um hark the herald angels sing which is one of my favorite christmas songs uh is veiled in flesh the godhead see hail the incarnate deity Mm. and that just really captures it well in terms of um you know just to think how many people i've often thought this how many people encountered jesus initially obviously is just a sort of a an quote unquote, ordinary person, you know, maybe a, a, a gifted teacher, obviously, or even as a healer. And then eventually down the road, they come to faith in Jesus and they have this moment of, I was face to face with God. Like I, I, I saw God in the flesh with my own two eyeballs. Like I looked on him. Um, and you know, you think of the old Testament, uh, refrain of, of, uh, no one being able to see God. And then John even mentions that here at the end of uh, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the mm-hmm. only God. And to think these people encountered God in the flesh um, must've been quite the mind blowing experience for them to put that together. Um, the other thing that always strikes me about this word is that John comes back to it in revelation 21, uh, where uh, he uses this same word or, or the root of, of this word or uh, conjugate of this word, mm-hmm. uh, to talk about God coming to dwell with his people in, in yep. sort of a final way. Yeah. Revelation uh, and, 21. Yep. Yeah. I, 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 I always appreciate that when I, when I read this, that, um, it's almost as if, uh, Jesus, it, well, no, it is uh, as Jesus being on earth is something of a foretaste, uh, and that there, there's an ultimate, uh, consummation, uh, to yeah. come where God is going to dwell with his people. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot in this passage. We're running low on time, but I do want to hit this last part where where he says, uh, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Again, if you look at footnotes and translations, there's debate as to the best way to translate that. But I want to capture this last phrase. He, meaning, meaning the word, has made him known. And um, that Greek verb there is the word from which we get exegesis. So it's the idea of Jesus is the one who has 
given us the fullest picture of who God is. And so it's interesting, you know, I, I will absolutely defend the value of an approach that starts in Genesis 1 and goes to Revelation 22, sort of an inductive approach to trace the storyline. But there is a very real sense in which I think part of what John is saying here is, if you want to know who God is, the starting point is actually Christ, hmm. the Word made flesh. Because he is the fullest manifestation, the fullest expression of who God is. And so as a starting point, I think that can be a helpful way, even to think about evangelism. You know, it, it makes sense in that context when you think, let's have someone read the Gospel of John and get them encountering Jesus and then work from there in terms of helping them understand what it means to to know Jesus, to, uh, to know God through Jesus um, and such. So... Yeah, no, no, that's that's wonderful. No, no, yeah, I don't, I, no notes. Um. Well, and I think um, that could be an interesting, you know, kind of if you're working on a Christmas message and you want to do John one, um, that could be a great launching pad for the significance of Christmas. Of this mm. is why it's a big deal, is because God, God through His Word has said, if you want to know who I am, start with Jesus. He is the fullest explanation, the fullest revelation of who God is. And so by learning who he is through scripture, studying that, um, that's a great and really arguably one of the best entry points into understanding who God is and what he's like and what it means to know him. Yeah. So, so don't start with like, well, here's seven reasons for God's existence. Here's... yeah. Uh, you know, here's my defeater to your theory of evolution. Um, right. Start with the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that that's that's just one of those things where it can be easy to get bogged down in some of those apologetic issues or objections. And there's a place for talking about them for sure. But um, focusing the discussion on, OK, let's talk about who is Jesus hmm. is um, really, I think, the way to go in terms of clarifying most importantly where a person is at, because if you understand who Jesus is, a lot of those other things start to fall into place. Um, do you have any books on the incarnation you read regularly? Anything that you, that's sort of, sort of a touchstone for you? I don't, I don't you No, I, for Christmas, I asked for, uh, I believe it's Athanasius on the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, but other other than that, that I haven't read yet, uh, no. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't have any go tos on that um, off the top of my head. So, hmm. well, if you have a go to, reach out to us and let us know if you have something that you go to on the incarnation. Yeah, yeah. What was it? Uh, was it Aquinas that wrote um, "Why God Became Man"? I mean, that's that's the English title. The Latin title was. Uh, I forget what, the t- what it was, but I think I think maybe Aquinas wrote that. I could be wrong. Maybe it was Anselm. One of those two. See, I get lost. In th- that's that window of church history where it's just like, I don't know what to do with as much. Like the scholastics and all that. It's just like, yeah, Middle Ages, Thomas, Aquinas, Anselm, all those folks. Like, eh. let's just jump from the church fathers to the Reformation. for kind yeah. of you know, <laughs> yeah. Like good Protestants, right? <laughs> Yeah. After the death of Constantine, let's just move on to the Reformation. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of move on, we should probably move on. You ready? Let's do it.
All right. Time now for This Day in Sports History, December 20th, 2022. December 20th, 2022. Um, on this day in sports history, 1921, uh, the American League uh, votes to return to best of seven uh, World Series while the NL votes best of nine. Uh, the commissioner, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, cast deciding vote for best of seven. Yeah. Did I say that first name right? Kennesaw? I believe so. Yes. Okay. Have you have you heard of him? Do you know much about like history of baseball stuff that far back? No, when I when I was when I was when I had the flu, I was looking up Ken Burn documentaries to watch. Yeah. And uh to see what was on Amazon Prime. I was looking for the baseball one or the Civil War one. Mm-hmm. And I was I was really interested in the baseball one, but it wasn't on Amazon Prime. Neither was mm-hmm. the Civil War. So Yeah. I have I told you the story? I took a class in college on the history of baseball. Did I t- have I told you that? I think I've told you the story. No, no, I have. I had no clue. What? I've not told no you the story. Clue. No. Okay. Real quick. So this was at Ohio university. Okay. So big secular campus. Um, and there was a course on the history of baseball and, um, being a sports guy, I'm like, that sounds interesting. It was a history class. So, um, <clears throat> so I took it and, you know, he, the prof made it clear up front. He's like, this is not a class about stats, about records, about who's winning the World Series. This is a class about what's going on in baseball in conjunction with the context of American history. And so um, it That's was awesome. hard. It was, I wish I could, I would love to go back and take it now. I bet. Wow. It was hard. I think. I think I struggled to get a B minus in that class. It was hard. So anyway, I, 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 one of these days I would love to go back and do a little bit more reading on the history of baseball because it is fascinating. There's a lot of interesting characters and people and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, one of my lower grades in college was a class on the history of baseball, which might've wow. been God's way of saying, yeah, you shouldn't be a uh, sports broadcaster apparently. Yeah. Well, th- you know, at least it wasn't a history of cricket, uh, which leads us into our next This Day in Sports History. Uh, 1932, 50-year-old, my goodness, Australian cricket test spinner, Bert Ironmonger. Did I get that right? Sure. Um, captures 7, uh, seven to 13 as Queens Island dismissed for 74. I don't know how this is a sentence. Uh, Victoria wins by an ending in 139 runs in Melbourne. Matt, I just have no idea what that means. Any of I'm, it. I'm really not sure either. But I had two reasons for putting it on there. One was watching you struggle over it is one of my great joys in the podcast. Yeah. And the second is, how do you beat a name like Bert Ironmonger? I have no idea. What a no name. Idea. Though I have no idea what the context of, uh, I have no no concept for what the significance of that statement was. So we should probably move but, on to things that we're a little bit more familiar with. But he's 50 as well. I mean, that's impressive. Yeah. As one who's about to turn 50 in the, in, in the somewhat near future, I, I'm impressed by that. Yes. Um, all right. 
1985, sportcaster Howard Cosell retires from television sports after 20 years with ABC. Yeah, he was before your time, but I'm guessing you've probably seen clips of Howard Cosell. I'm familiar with the name. Familiar with the name. Yeah. Um, 2005. Kobe Bryant of the L.A. Lakers puts up 62 points in three quarters, uh, while the Mavericks score 61 points in the same time frame, making this the first time a single player has outscored a team in three quarters since the shot clock was implemented. Yeah, I'm both impressed at how good Kobe was and uh, impressed with how bad the Mavericks must have been. Hmm. But I yeah, mean, I, re- I remember that. I remember that his sixty-two point game. I also remember. Did he have an eighty-one point game as well? That was his high. Yep, eighty-one. I, think I remember both these. Yeah. So, what do you want to go with here, John? Oh my! Um, my goodness. Part of me wants to put either Kennesaw Mountain Landis or Bert Ironmonger in our show title. You know, <laughs> one of those two would be would be excellent in the show title. Yeah, I think we got to go with Bert Ironmonger. I mean, Bert Ironmonger. I, I don't know how we're going to find a better name than that. So I, I, that's my vote. All right, one thing you liked. Uh, I just finished a podcast series that was fascinating through The Economist um, called, let me get the name of it right, uh, The Prince. Have you heard of this? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, It is an eight-episode story exploring who is um, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the... Uh, party leader of the communist Chinese or the Chinese communist party uh, and, and the leader who has just started his unprecedented third term. Uh, okay. And so they, they walk through where he grew up, where he's from, all these things. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, so the Prince, uh, the story of Xi Jinping, I think I'm saying that right. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to go with a podcast as well that I've just started. So uh, I'm only a little into the second episode, but the but the story it's about is fascinating. The podcast is called Father Wants Us Dead. And it's the story of a man named John List. He was an accountant and Sunday school teacher, in New, lived in, New, in Westfield, New Jersey. Very wealthy, lived in this mansion. He killed his mother, his wife, and their three kids. Oh gosh. Left them for like left their bodies in this mansion. And the bodies weren't discovered for a month. Oh god. And he literally just disappeared. Left a left a confession note behind basically saying I did it. And went off and started a new life. And it took him years to find him. So that's the podcast that I've, been, I've just started. Um, fascinating story. Fascinating oh story. Yeah, that sounds horrifying. 
But I mean, it's 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 the church, the true crime yeah. genre. It's true crime. It's true crime. True crime's great. Yes. The reality of it's very scary. Very yes. Scary. Yes, for sure. For sure. All right. We have talked Christmas traditions. We've talked NBA awards. We've talked the Christmas story from John 1. We've talked Bert Ironmonger. We have talked... Not, not that we know what that means, other than a name. We have no idea what yeah. he actually accomplished. That means really very little to us, but how do you need well, a, a name? Spinner, he's a test spinner. Yes, and that means... Uh, it's a cricket position. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well done. Yes. Uh, <laughs> great contextual reading there. Reading comprehension yeah, yeah. skills. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> and we've talked a couple of podcasts that we uh, are listening to. So I think by definition, uh, actually, before we do that, we should also wish our listeners a Merry Christmas. Right? Merry Christmas. This is the Absolutely. last episode we'll record before uh That'll drop before Christmas. So we hope that you have a great celebration of the birth of Jesus and um, that you experience the joy of the Christmas season in the midst of the busyness and and such. So, uh, but I think now we are ready to say all that's left to say is until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. <laughs> <laughs>